about, uh, whoa, what's going on here? Um, yes, good morning, everyone. We're glad that you're here uh, with us this morning at Family Church, where we exist to be the easiest place for people to experience the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And if you have not in, into a relationship with him, it's our hope and prayer that sometime before you leave this morning that you would be willing to do that. We are starting a brand new series, as Kyle said this morning, uh, where we're going to be looking uh, at the devil. And the title of it is When the Devil Knocks. And uh, I want to let you know up front, um, this, this is not going to be, and I kind of alluded to this last week, this is not going to be a, uh, a devil-glorifying uh, series. It's going to be a series that will hopefully inform us and help us in our struggle against the enemy, our adversary, the devil. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the devil, and I thought one that maybe the best way to approach it would be to kind of look at some of his names. And so the Lord willing, here's the plan. This morning, we're going to be looking at the name Lucifer, which was his name in heaven when he was one of the archangels before he got cast out, and we'll be talking about how that all played out this morning. Next week, Sue and I are going to be in Denver at a marriage encounter weekend, so Kyle is actually going to be sharing next week where he's going to be looking at some of the other names of the devil. Uh, adversary, um, Satan, uh, El Diablo, um, there's some other ones as well. And then two weeks from this morning, we'll conclude the series by looking at the uh, that a, a name I'm sure that everyone's going to be interested in, the Antichrist. The Antichrist, which is the devil personified at the end of the ages. So it's kind of bookends. This morning is kind of at the beginning when he was Lucifer before he was cast out of heaven. And at two weeks from now, kind of at the end when he uh, personifies himself in, in a person in, in a form of a person and comes back and uh, actually does miracles and is going to deceive a lot of people, okay? So that's kind of the plan. So I'm excited about this, and I think uh, hopefully it will be um, uh, a very informative series. Hopefully it will be an encouragement to you. Uh, but you need, to, you need to understand, look, if you're a Jesus follower, you're going to be dealing with the devil until the day that you either die or until Jesus comes back for you. That's the bad news. The good news is and, uh, he's, he's defeated. He's already a defeated foe, as, as the uh, title package said. He and his plan was defeated at the cross. But it's kind of like when the heavy, heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, years ago, in the rubber match with Joe Frazier, remember those? How many are you old enough to remember Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, the thriller in Manila? You know, that was the rubber match because, you know, Ali won the first fight, then Frazier won the second, so they had the third rubber match, the thriller in Manila, because it took place down in Manila. And Ali ended up winning the fight. I think it went, uh, I think it maybe got, almost went 15 rounds. Maybe it was a TKO in the 14th. But after the fight, Ali said this. He said, I knew I had him in the second round because he landed a punch on him that staggered Frazier. And I thought that was a good analogy. He said, I knew I had him in the second round. It was just a matter of playing out the rounds. The rope-a-dopa, right, kind of wearing him out. I'm, I'm serious. That what wrote. Mike, what, what, rope-a-dopa, what, wasn't that a legitimate strategy that yeah. all he said, all right? Yeah. Okay, anyway, so, <laughs> but that's kind of how this is with the, with the adversary. We've already won. The, you know, the, the TKO was at Calvary at the cross when Jesus, well, actually, it was, it was Easter morning is when it was solidified, when he rose from the dead, okay? So it's just a matter of we got to, you know, we got to play out the rounds, you know? we got to play out the rounds, okay? So, um and the reason I point that out is because I, I want us to understand that any power, listen to this, any power or influence of Satan in our lives today is because we allow it. You need to understand that. If Satan has any influence in our lives today, 
It's because we allow him to do that. I, I'm serious. You need to understand that. That this isn't something that, you know, we're kind of helpless in. No, no, no. He's already been defeated. At this point, it's our choice. It's our decision. What are we going to do with this? Are we going to walk in victory? You see? So, this isn't a devil-glorifying series. It's a devil-informing series to help us be successful as we finish out these rounds of our fight with the devil, right? And this will help us learn more about him. Kind of as Michael Corleone said in Godfather 2, he said, my father taught me many things. One of those was to keep your friends close, but your enemies even closer. That's what we're trying to do here. We, we want to understand his ways, right? The point being, you have to know your enemy to stay one step ahead of him. Which sort of leads to this next point that I want to make about the devil, that being that there really is a devil. Now that might sound redundant to say that, but the first step in knowing your adversary, the devil, is to simply acknowledge he exists. He's out there. Now, that, again, that might sound redundant, but you'd be surprised at how many people, how many Christians don't really believe there's a devil. So as we begin this series, I want us to read some passages of Scripture, and I want you to make mental note of how many times the devil is mentioned. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the who? Well, that was weak. Your adversary, the who? Devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay? Luke 10. 17 to 20, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And we talked in a previous study a few weeks ago how those are names for the devil. Okay, those two names, serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the who? Devil, Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the who? Devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, the reason that I read those verses, and I want to make note of the number of times the devil was mentioned, is because today, according to statistics, Barna research, over 60% of Jesus followers People who claim to be Christians don't believe there's a devil. They don't believe there's a devil. In fact, there are entire denominations that don't believe in the devil or hell. They believe that they're symbols of evil, but they don't believe that there's an actual being named Satan or Diablo. But here's the deal. It is intellectually dishonest to say you believe in God, but don't believe in the devil. You cannot do that. That is intellectually dishonest to do that. Right? Furthermore, if there's no devil then uh, you might as well throw this book away. Because this book talks specifically about the devil. Jesus interacted. If the devil doesn't exist, who was that Jesus was talking to? When he was telling who was that? Tell me that. You see? I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but that, that astounded me. How can 60% of Jesus followers say, well, I don't believe in the devil or hell? Talk about having your cake and eating it too. Right? The truth is, there is a hell, and there really is a devil. And we need to understand this, not so we can focus on it, but so we can protect ourselves when the devil comes knocking, because he will come knocking. So as we begin this series, I thought the best way to approach it would be to look at some different names for the devil, which I kind of already mentioned. Uh, and what we're going to look at this morning is Lucifer, which was the devil's name before he became the devil, because the devil wasn't always the devil. I mentioned that last week. In fact, at one time, the devil was an angel. Not just an angel, but one of the highest ranking angels in heaven. Right? 
who the Bible calls an archangel. Have you heard that term before, archangel? Right. The Bible doesn't say archangels, but most theologians believe the three mentioned by name in the Bible are Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And we're going to see in our study this morning that Lucifer rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. And where he was cast is very, very important because he was cast to earth, this planet. So let's jump right in and see what the Bible has to say about Lucifer. What did the devil do before he fell? That's our first question. Let's answer that. To answer that, we've got to look at a couple of Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Now, as we read these passages, or first this passage in Isaiah, I want you to make note of the number of times the phrase, I will, is made. Okay? Spoiler alert. There's five of them. So, so follow along with me, all right? How many times you see the phrase, I will, and they all have to do with the idea of being lifted up. Here we go, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nation low. You said in your heart, okay, Isaiah's about to reveal the devil's motive here. Okay? These, these are things that the, the devil, that Lucifer said in his heart. That's who this is referring to here. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Even here, when expressing his desire to be like God, he doesn't even say most holy, right? But rather most high. That's, that's, that's key. That's key. I will be like the most high, right? For the devil, it's all about being lifted up. You see that? Five different times he talks about that. Now let's see God's response to Lucifer's motive here, his desire to ascend, to be lifted up. Verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. All right, so five times Lucifer just flat out tells us his desire, his motive to be exalted, to be lifted up. And let there be any misunderstanding or confusion about his motive and his desire. In one of those statements, he just flat out says, yeah, I want to be like God. He just flat out look, he puts it out there. I want to be like God. And just FYI, you might not believe this, but it's true. Since we were born as sinners, this is actually something that we all aspire to. We don't see it in the mirror, though. You, you can't see this in the mirror. And I'm talking about our selfishness. I'm talking about our pride. Right? I remember years ago when we were youth pastors here at this church and Otis was the pastor and he would sometimes talk about our, our old human nature. But he would call it our Adamic nature because of Adam. You know, we're all born... As sons and daughters of Adam. So Otis would talk about that old nature, that Adamic nature. But it's really not an Adamic nature because Adam wasn't the first sinner. Lucifer was the first sinner. So if you want to be more honest about that, our old sinful nature, it's not an Adamic nature, it's a satanic nature. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? So you can find out you had a satanic nature. But it's true. Lucifer was the first sinner. Right? We were all born with the satanic nature. And that nature is wrapped up in this statement, I want to be seen. I want to be exalted. I want people to worship me and pay attention to me. Now, when you hear me say this, oh, no, I'm not like that. Think about this. Before we came to Christ, who was the most important person in our life? It was us, wasn't it? 
Look in the mirror. And the residue of that selfishness is still with us. In fact, it will be with us as long as we live in these temporal mortal bodies. And if there's a part of you that pushes back against that, let me ask you a question, all right? And be honest when you answer this, okay? Have you ever taken a group picture with anyone? When you look at that picture, who's the first? Come on now. Who's the first person you look for? Be honest. And you know what? If you don't look good, the whole picture's bad. You said, oh, that's, that's a bad picture, right? Right? Yeah, I just busted you all, didn't I? Because we're all born with this selfish, it's all about me nature. But when we become born again, when we come to Christ, our goal is to be like Him. And when we read about Jesus in the New Testament, He's always, not sometimes, not every now and then, He is always deflecting attention to one of the other persons of the Trinity. Right? Either the, either the Father or the Holy Spirit. Right? He, no, he, he would say things like, I came to do the Father's will, or the Father sent me. And the Bible says that one of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus. So there's this reciprocal relationship that takes place where Jesus defers to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit defers to Jesus, which makes you wonder what kind of conversation they must have had up in heaven with this Trinity nature, right? Like, Father, you're so wonderful. Holy Spirit, oh, no, 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 you're so wonderful. Jesus, no, 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 you're so wonderful, right? That's kind of facetious, but seriously, Jesus always deflected to the other forms of the Trinity, right? Here's the deal. If you want to know how well you're doing spiritually, how much you're growing or maturing, probably the greatest litmus test of whether or not you're growing spiritually is how much more unselfish or preoccupied with yourself you are than you used to be. How much more focused you are on God and others. I didn't uh, ask him if I could use this as an illustration, but I'm going to anyway. Kyle, our son, few weeks ago at one point in time we were talking about kind of where he's at in his life now and he said you know he said and these are my words talk about how you know i don't have a whole lot of free time anymore because he is so invested in the church with the prison ministry he's mentoring uh, 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 someone incarcerated over at lansing the things he does with uh, the youth group now he's getting plugged into fca but you know I, I thought that was you know to me that is a real sign of maturity that that, you know, cause, I mean, more of his life is devoted to ministry than mine, and I get paid to do this. I felt guilty after talking to him. But you understand what I'm saying? That's a sign of spiritual maturity is when you're more outward focused. You know, you, you've got the kingdom mindset, the, the, the Great Commission, and we've got to go out into the world and tell these people, right? We began reading at verse 12, but let's back up one verse to verse 11 because there's a very important point about Lucifer, the that the prophet mentions that we need to know. Isaiah 14, 11, Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps, now some translations say stringed instruments there. Your pomp is brought down to the sound of your harps or your stringed instruments. Okay, the prophet is describing Lucifer here before his fall, and he says that while he was in the Lord's presence, before he rebelled and was cast out, he had some stringed instruments. You see that? Make note of that. That's important. Now, this prophecy Isaiah gives us here was actually given to the king of Babylon at that time. Verse 4 tells us that. But listen, listen to me, this is important. Even though Isaiah was prophesying about the king of Babylon, we know he was talking about Lucifer. Isaiah was speaking to a man, a king, all right? But he was actually speaking to the spirit that was driving the king. This was not an un uncommon thing, folks. It wasn't uncommon for a prophet to be speaking to a person, but the mass message was actually directed to the spirit driving that person. 
In fact, you know of a pretty famous time that this happened with Jesus. One time Jesus turned to Peter, a man, remember that? Jesus turned to Peter and made this comment, Get thee behind me, Satan. Right? So Jesus was talking to a man, but he was addressing the spirit behind the man. I want you to see that this is not an uncommon thing. So that's what's going on here in, uh, in these prophecies, okay, that we're reading. Isaiah speaking to the king of Babylon. And now we're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 28, the prophet here, Ezekiel, is addressing Lucifer, but it's, it's the, the spirit behind, and he's addressing the king of Tyre, but it's, it's, it's apparent that he's talking to Lucifer. Let's read that. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 17. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, and a man raised a lamentation over the king of Tyre, okay, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet or, or seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, if, if the prophet wasn't talking about Lucifer here, then the prince of Tyre must have been one handsome dude. Alright? He must have been one handsome dude. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. We know the prince of Tyre was never in Eden. Right? In fact, there were only People in Eden, God, Adam, Eve, and who? The serpent, right? Lucifer, the serpent. And we know that the prince of Tyre never could have gone into Eden because after Adam and Eve fell, God cast them out and guarded the entryway with a couple of flaming swords. But listen up. Even that wasn't the judgment of God. You know that even when, when God cast Adam and Eve out, out of the garden, People say that that that, that was, well, it, it kind of was the judgment, but more than anything, it was to protect them. Because think about this, that was really the grace of God, not the judgment of God. Here's why. Since Adam and Eve had rebelled and fell, they had eaten from that other tree in the garden, right? After falling, for eating from the tree of knowledge, had they eaten from the other tree, who can tell me what the name of the other tree was? Tree of life. See, there's two trees mentioned in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Adam and Eve, the serpent deceived them. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Had they stayed in the garden, had they eaten from the tree of life, at that point, many theologians believe that they could, we would have been beyond redemption because they would have been permanently tainted with that sin after eating of the tree of life. So even being cast out of the garden, that was God's grace of getting them out of there. So he could plant this plan of redemption to win us back, to redeem us back. So even that was an act of, of, of grace, right? Do you see that? Okay, so God was like, we need to get them out of the garden before they eat of that other tree. And I'm not able to redeem them. He says, get them out, get them out now. But think about this. That same tree, that tree of life, think about this. The tree of life that the book of Revelation tells us is in heaven now. You know what? When we get to heaven, guess what? We're going to be able to eat of that tree. Revelation tells us that. We will be able to eat of that same tree in heaven, the tree of life. Isn't that cool? I thought it was cool. So, but even, my point being, even driving Adam and Eve from the garden was an act of grace and mercy, not judgment. It goes on. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and whatever, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. King James Version here says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. 
the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes, talking about Lucifer here, was prepared for you on the day you were cut. Now, we're going to come back to this statement in a few minutes, but I wanted to underscore how Lucifer was adorned with every precious stone this planet had to offer. Right? Think about that. This guy lacked for nothing. He had a position of leadership. He was a worship leader in heaven. We'll talk more about that in a second. He had every precious stone that was on this planet available to him. Right? Now watch this next statement. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Now further proof that this is talking, this is referring to an angel, to a fallen angel, Lucifer, not the real king of Tyre. Okay? I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Remember, it's talking about Lucifer here. Till unrighteousness was found in you, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Folks, this is describing the fall of Lucifer when God cast him out of heaven. And the reason he was cast out of heaven was because of pride. Verse 16 says, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. Some translations say they use the word merchandising there. The meaning of the word would be like embezzlement. It would be like if you worked at Home Depot and someone, someone came through with uh, uh, $500 uh, worth of, uh, of uh, uh, construction equipment, some remodeling or something like that, and, and you checked them out, but in, instead of ringing up $500, uh, you rang up uh, 450 and you pocketed 50 for yourself. Mer that's merchandising. That's what this word is talking about here. That's what this word is talking about here, right? That's in essence what Lucifer was doing. He was taking what rightfully belonged to God and pilfering some, trying to redirect it to himself. He was stealing from God, which, which makes no sense when you think about it because he had everything. This guy had everything. And yet still felt like he didn't have, he needed something else. He, he wanted to be like God, right? So that makes no sense, you know? Why, why would he want to do this when he had everything at his disposal? So what was he stealing? He was stealing God's praise and adoration. That's what he was stealing. Many theologians believe that Lucifer was heaven's worship leader. They get that from verse 13 that we'll look at here in a minute. But apparently because of pride, Lucifer was, uh, he, he had kept some of the, pra some of the praise that was rightfully directed to God and uh, directed it to himself. And at that very moment, God said, you're out of here. You're out of here. And he was cast out of heaven. And where he was cast is very important because he was cast to where? What was he cast? Here, earth. And since then, this whole cosmic scene of eternal salvation and eternity is played out on this otherwise insignificant planet, third rock from the sun that we call earth because this is where Satan was cast to, when he was cast out of God's presence because of his rebellion. But, and this is important, God didn't kick Lucifer out of heaven because he was scared or intimidated or insecure. He kicked him out of heaven because justice demanded it. Justice de demanded he be kicked out. God was, is, and will always be the Holy One worthy of our praise and adoration. God wasn't scared of Lucifer, people. Don't, don't, that's not, that's not what's going on here. He was just doing what needed to be done to maintain divide order in the heavenlies. So let's go back and look at verse 13 for a second because there's some very significant information given in this verse that I want us to see. That word timbrel. Now what English word would remind us of a timbrel? Tambourine. 
a tambourine. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what the Hebrew word means here. It's talking about what would be our the equivalent of our tambourine. Okay, uh, it mentions pipes. The Hebrew word here used uh, for any wind instrument. Some translations actually use the word flutes there for pipes. Now let's merge this. Let's merge this with the passage that we just read in Isaiah chapter 14, where we just read where it talks about Lucifer's harps or stringed instruments. It says, the sound of your harps, again, some translations say stringed instruments. So let's see what we've got here. We've got tambourines, which is percussion. We've got harps, right, or stringed instruments. And do you know that all instruments fall into one of three categories? Did you know that? Percussion, string. When all instruments fall into one of those one of those three categories, but not only that, did you know that on the day that you were born, you were born with all three of the instrument types, and so was I. That's right. That's right. Vocal cords that operate under the same principle as stringed instruments, so that when we put our breath past our vocal cords, we make noise. Right? We make noise. When our breath passes over the vocal cords, that's how we get the sound that comes out of our mouth. With our hands, we have percussion, right? And we also, with our mouth, we can sing. And, and people say, well, I can't sing. Yes, you can. Well, no, maybe you can't. You can make a joyful noise. Right after, right after our prayer this morning, our grandson Vossen came and says, Gramps, are you going to sing this morning? Oh, no. Gramps don't sing anymore. Gramps makes a joyful noise. Right? So don't say you can't sing. You can. You can make a joyful noise to the Lord. So, answer to the first question about the devil. What did he do before he fell and was cast out of heaven, out of God's presence? Well, apparently he was the worship leader of some type in heaven. Right? But at some point, started trying to direct or steal that worship that belonged to God for himself. All right. Question number two. What's the devil trying to do right now? Matthew 4, 8, 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What's Satan doing today? The same thing he was doing when God cast him out of heaven. He's trying to steal God's glory and his worship, right? But notice, he tried to do this to Jesus. He even tried to get Jesus to worship him. But notice how he presented this offer to Jesus. It wasn't just about getting Jesus to verbally worship him. Notice he tries to entice Jesus by offering to give him all the kingdoms of the world, which they already belonged to Jesus anyway, so that really wasn't a legitimate offer. But anyway, he didn't realize that. Satan offers, the devil offers to give him all the kingdoms of the world, but again, that was a bogus claim. But he didn't just ask Jesus to verbally worship him. He wanted Jesus to bow down. See that? He didn't want Jesus to just verbally worship, say, I worship you. He wanted him to bow down, which is huge. That's a huge point that I want us to note there. Because our posture is very important when it comes to worship. It is. We don't have the time to go into that, but we'll talk about that maybe in a future message. We do a series on worship. But this is huge because it tells us a lot about expressing our worship. Now, I've heard people say, well, they don't get very animated when they worship because I'm worshiping on the inside. I'm worshiping on the inside. And that same person will go home an hour and a half later, the chiefs will have it first and goal. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm celebrating on the inside. No, you're not. You're jumping up and down. Right? Just trying to keep it real. Yeah. 
All right, uh, so what's the devil doing today? He's still trying to get people to stop worshiping God and begin worshiping him. He started in heaven. He continued to do this with Adam and Eve after he was cast to earth, right? Appeared to them as a serpent, got them. He continued with Jesus, tried to get him to bow down, right? And he will continue to do so. We know this, folks, we have his playbook. We have his playbook. We know what he's going to do, right? And then third question, what will the devil be doing in the future? You tell me, what's he going to continue to do? Revelation 13, 4. And they worship the dragon. John tells us in the previous chapter who the dragon is in Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. For he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now that's a reference to the Antichrist. Okay, and we'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks because that'll be an interesting topic because people say, because uh, honestly, the, most theologians believe the Antichrist is alive and well right now, somewhere on earth. That he is alive somewhere on this planet, right? Say, well, pastor, who do you, th- well, I got an idea who I think it is. People have always had an idea who they think it is. You know, Hitler, uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, John Kennedy, and the Kennedy thing is because that apparently he will actually be resurrected from the dead with a mortal head wound, the Antichrist. Folks, this guy, this guy's going to do miracles. Because you say, well, you know, I won't be deceived. No, you don't know that. The, the, when the devil becomes personified as any person of the Antichrist, the, the world's going to be in a total chaos, and this guy's going to have some answers, and it's going to sound legit, and he's going to have miracles to back it up. So don't think, I won't, no, you don't know that. Seriously. This guy's legit, okay? Say, well, I don't know who the Antichrist is. And depending on what you believe about the rapture, because if you think we're going to be raptured at a certain point in time, you won't even be here anyway when he's revealed. I don't know if we're going to be here or not, right? And don't get too sidetracked trying to figure out who it is. You know, during football season, I think it's Tom Brady. But then it kind of changes throughout the seasons, right? So, um, that last phrase, who is like the beast and who can fight against it, that last phrase is worth noting because uh, its opposite is found way back in the book of Exodus. By opposite, I'm talking about how while this song was described in Revelation uh, as being sung to the beast, the Antichrist, the original version of it was sung to the Lord over 500 years before. Children of Israel were standing on the banks of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army bearing down on them from behind, barring a miracle, they were history. They were were either dead or going to be dragged back into slavery. So what do they do? Well, at this point, Moses and his wife Miriam begin to lead the children of Israel in a song. And it was one of the very first songs I learned when I came back to the Lord in 1976, when I went over to a uh, service at the mustard seed. And I heard all these hippies singing some song about a horse and rider being thrown into the sea. And And then later I found out that was actually in the Bible. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphant gloriously. The Lena, Lena had a flashback, didn't you? <laughs> but, but, but seriously, that was one of the first songs I learned. But that was the original version. At the end, again, trying to mimic, right? The Antichrist is going to have a version of that song towards him by people who are deceived by him, right? Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you? Uh, Moses and Miriam begin to lead the people as Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them in the Red Sea. What are we going to do here? And they start singing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And at that, the, the, the Red Sea parted, and we know the rest is history. Charlton Heston led the people of Israel 
Just sing a few awake. Love the people of God across the, the Red Sea. And then they, they sing that song in celebration, right? So uh, that's a song we're going to sing in heaven. So it might be good to learn that now. So you, when we're in heaven, you don't have to watch the PowerPoints and be embarrassed. All right, the point to be made here is simply that in these last days, people will sing that same thing about the beast who is like the beast who can fight against him. He's already lost, folks. He's already lost. Again, I read the end of the book. He's just trying to wreak as much havoc as he can, killing, stealing, destroying as much as he can until his time's up because his time is almost up. It's almost up. Revelation 17, 14. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So here's what's going to happen. One day Jesus is going to be sitting on his throne and a person is going to appear on earth in the midst of all this chaos who's going to appear to have all the answers and bring peace to a world that's in, on the brink of nuclear catastrophe and holocaust. And this person's going to be very charismatic, he's going to be very likable, very believable, very persuasive. And he will convince people that he has the answers for world peace. In fact, the Bible indicates that he will do miracles, okay? And that person will be the Antichrist. And when he appears on earth, he will persuade some people, many people, in fact, to praise and worship him. And again, sitting in here this morning, we can hear that, and we can. it's very easy to say, no, I'm not going to be deceived. You don't know that, people. You don't know that, right? This guy is going to be very convincing, and he's going to have power to back up what he says, right? But at some point, okay, at some point, it's going to be, he's going to have such a loyal following, they're going to start singing to the Antichrist, who is like the beast and who is able to fight against it? And at some point, Jesus, I mean, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. This is kind of how I envision it. As the people on earth who have been deceived by the Antichrist start singing, who is like the beast, who is able to fight against it? And Jesus, sitting on a stone in heaven, is going to turn to Gabriel and say, what did they just say? And Gabriel, who's been waiting for this day for a long time, just chomping at the bit. He said, they said he's like the beast and who can fight against him? Jesus, that's what they said. And Jesus is going to say, that's what I thought they said. Gabe, go get my sword. It's time. It's time to kick butt and take names. And John describes what's going to happen next. He describes it this way. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You want to know who's going to be able to make war with the beast? That guy right there. That's who's going to, he's not only going to make war, he's going to kick his butt. He's already been defeated. Right? Not only that, when Jesus comes back to fight against this guy, guess who's in his posse? Us! Us! We're riding with him. Right? I, I kind of envisioned that going over a little more. Uh, so anyway, all right. But here's what's so amazing about this. Lucifer was covered with every precious stone. Listen to John's description of the of the Lamb's Bride, the New Jerusalem. 
This is Revelation uh, 21 to, and then verses 10 to 11, and then 18 to 23. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Look at that. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, what, do these sound familiar? Right? The fifth onyx, the sixth, whatever, right? And the twelve gates, verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. That is one bodacious pearl, I'm telling you. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So, think about this. Lucifer was created with precious stones. God created his bride with precious stones. Who's the Lord's bride? Us. Us. So it's talking about them. That's who John's describing in his revelation. Lucifer was created with instruments. We were created with instruments. We call them vocal cords, wind, breath, percussion. Right? So, question. Who is God's worship leader now? Say it louder, Mike. Us. 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 And we don't know exactly how it played out, but I wonder if it was like maybe something like this happened. After Lucifer rebelled against God, was cast out of heaven, God, which, which, which must have left some type of void uh, with Lucifer and a third of the angels now out of the scene, right? Because when Lucifer was cast out, we're told that a third of the, he convinced a third of the angels to, to follow him. So when Lucifer was cast out, a third of the angelic host, we don't know that number, but however many there were, a third of them were cast out of heaven, which must have left some type of void in heaven, right? Now that they're, the Lucifer and a third of the angels are cast down to the earth. So God begins to straighten things up. I can see him kind of straighten things up after that upheaval. So he begins this creative process, right? You know, you got earth. Earth must have already been created if that's where Lucifer was cast. So God continues the creative process, light, and then the earth and seas, and then plants and the trees, and then animal life. And then finally, towards the end of that sixth day, Lucifer approaches God. Again, this is, this is kind of, humor me here. This is kind of how I see this playing out. At the end of the creation time, Lucifer approaches God and says, Hey, big guy, who's going to give you praise now? Who's going to give you praise now? Right? Who's your worship leader now? And I can see God bending over, taking some dirt, doing this and going, There's my worship leader right there. When he created man. When he created man. All right? It's almost as if God is kind of rubbing it in Satan's face. You want to know how this is going to work? I'll show you how great I am. I will create a worship leader with a piece of dirt. All right? How powerful is God? So powerful that he can demonstrate his glory through a piece of dirt. And think about that. What, what an amazing turn of events. I mean, we, again, we don't know exactly how it played out, but we know that it played out. We know that we're created from dirt, right? And then sadly, that dirt, like a third of the angels, was deceived by Satan and began to deviate from God's plan. That dirt became a living soul, a soul that would live forever. That dirt decided to follow Satan. So watch this now. This is amazing. God decided, look, God decided to become dirt himself. And 
and died to redeem the living souls that he created from dirt. What did the devil do before he fell? He tried to steal God's glory. What did the devil, what's the devil doing right now? Trying to steal God's glory. What's he going to continue to do? Try to steal God's glory. Right? That's been his MO from the very beginning. He tried it in heaven, got him kicked out. He continued and continues even today to try to get people to worship him. What will the devil be doing in the future? Trying to steal God's glory. He will not deviate. Folks, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Apparently it works because that's what he's still trying to do. And sometimes we fall for it. And he'll not deviate that from that strategy till the very end. Paul tells us this in one of his letters to the Jesus followers in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, again, this is referring to the Antichrist, which is Satan personified at the end. So he's talking about the devil. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That, dear ones, is the devil's end game. He wants to be God. He, he wants to be God. Right? That's what he's always been focused on, locked in on, intent on doing, stealing God's worship. The thing is, and again, personally, I believe this guy's alive today, this Antichrist. I, I really do, right? But we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks, right? But here's the deal. When the Antichrist, whoever, whoever it is, when he shows up, when he, when, he, when he shows his hand, and that's going to be a dramatic moment that we'll, we'll talk about how that plays out, but when he shows his hand, at that point, the events surrounding the Lord's turn have just been amped up a lot. When the Antichrist shows his hand, at that point, that's when we're going to know. Man, this thing is about over. This is about over. Now, the question is, will everyone know this is the Antichrist? That's the scary part. No, you won't. We think we will, but we don't know that we will for sure. He's going to have a lot of followers, people. It's going to be easy to follow this guy is what I'm saying. All right? Now, 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Question, does any of that sound familiar? And your parents are saying, yeah, especially that disobedient to parents. Right? I, I find it interesting that they throw that in there with these other categories. You think about that. I, I think there's more to that. We don't have time to discuss it, but I do think there's something about that. So what do we do about this? When the devil comes knocking, what do we do? Because, folks, he don't have cookies for you. He's not the welcome wagon. <laughs> He's not going to welcome you to the neighborhood, hopefully. What do we do when he comes knocking? James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, and we'll talk more about this verse through the series. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, the key to understanding this one-sentence instruction for how to deal with the devil is that very first word, submit. Think about it. What was the thing that got Lucifer to rebel against God? Pride. Pride. See, the way that you battle pride is through humility. And one of the best ways we can demonstrate our humility is through our submission to the Lord. The best way to defeat a spirit is with the opposite spirit. That's why Jesus told us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Which in the man, that makes no sense in the natural, does it? That's the last thing we want to do. 
but that's just another way that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. When you fight fire with fire, you only get a bigger fire. Right? So in battling pride, you need to squelch it with its counterpart, humility, and follow the example of our Lord and Savior, who when asked about greatness, responded by saying this, and we'll finish with this, Matthew 20, 26-28. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's stand. If you're here this morning and you have never made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Just going to lead you in a prayer. You know, getting right with God's a very simple process. It's a two-step process. It's, it's repent. The Bible talks about repenting. And the, the, the essence of repentance is you're walking this way and you're going to turn around and walk that way. That, that's literally what the, the, the meaning of the word is. You're, you're turning and walking 180 degrees the other way. So by repenting, you're just telling God, you know, I want to start living my life for you. And then Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So, if you want to get right with the Lord, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. Let's just everyone, Lord, you can pray this out loud, you can pray it in your mind, however you want to do it. Lord, I, I recognize that I'm not right with you. And so I pray, Father, that you would forgive me of my sins. I do confess that Jesus is Lord. I do believe that you raised him on the third day and that he not only lives in heaven, but, but by your Holy Spirit lives inside my heart now because I've invited him in there. And I pray that you would help me to begin living my life for you and not be so consumed with myself, Lord. Help me to do that, Father. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, then I'm going to ask a favor of you that you would either tell someone before you leave, just say, hey, you know, I prayed that prayer with Pastor, you can tell me, or you can get one of those cards on the back of the chair because there's a place there that says, I prayed to receive Jesus. And mark that there so we can follow up with you and help you on this new journey. Lord, I do pray that you would um, indeed help us as we continue to uh, learn more about our adversary, the devil. And as we learn more about him and how he operates and his motive, Lord, I pray that we would be more committed to walking in those truths and precepts that you've outlined for us, for us to be victorious. He's already defeated, we know that but he's going to try and wreak as much havoc, create as much hell in our lives as possible until the end. And that's, Father, why we need to know how he operates so that we can be better equipped to overcome him when he comes knocking. So continue to guide us through this series, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I believe there is still quite a bit of bread, some Panera bread back there on the table in the fellowship hall. If you want to pick some of that up before you leave, you're welcome to that.